0: Thanks for listening to the Chapel Podcast. At the Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. The reoccurring discussion of racism seems to come up about every four years, right around the time of the election. And it's no question today that our nation has a dark history of racism, and I'm not here to belittle the importance of this issue by indicating that it is used more as a political tactic rather than a healthy conversation, but I'm just here to point out the facts, unfortunately. Most recently, the rise of the critical race theory has crept into the church, dividing many congregations, Now, the critical race theory confuses congregants by leading them to believe that everyone is born born inherently a racist, when in reality, everyone is born a sinner, and the issue of racism is just the fruit of the underlying issue, and that is sin. And it also is an unfair statement given to everyone, that everyone in and of themselves is a racist. And the critical race theory has no place in the church, and it is not helpful, nor is it uh, beneficial to the sake of the gospel. But when we typically think of racism here in America, we think of prejudice between what? Whites and blacks, right? We overlook the other forms of racism because of the history of America and the long-standing battle, if you want to put it that way, between the whites and the blacks. But even though American culture highlights that one form of racism, that certainly does not mean that other forms don't exist. We can all agree that racism has no place within the hearts of the people. We can certainly agree that it has no place in the hearts of God's people and the church body, but the foundational problem with racism is the failure to view people how God views people, and that is created in the image of God, what Pastor Bryce talked about last week. We are marred or the image of God is marred through our sin. We distort ourselves through, or sin distorts the outlook when it comes to the things of God and God's creation. And unfortunately, like some churches today, this church in Ephesus struggled with prejudice between the Christian Gentiles and the Christian Jews. The Jews developed some sort of sense of entitlement based upon the fact that they were God's chosen people and that salvation came through them. The Gentiles would respond, To the arrogance of the Jews by reminding them that the same God who chose them also chose the Gentiles as well. And rather than operating in unity, the church in Ephesus was paralyzed by prejudice in a lot of ways. As we continue our study through the uh, uh, book of Ephesians, we find ourselves in chapter 2 again this morning. The Apostle Paul continues on this subject of salvation by addressing this very issue, and that is the issue of prejudice. Paul reminds the Jews and the Gentiles that through Christ, we all have unity and peace. But rather than resort to a man made theory or rehab or program to solve the issue of prejudice, the Apostle Paul goes back to the only thing that will truly solve it, and that is the gospel. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 is a way of review. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Ephesus. It was not designed as a specific book to one church, but rather meant to be a circulating letter amongst all the churches or the Christians within Ephesus specifically, but then spread out. Now, unlike a lot of the other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, this letter was not written to address a specific issue within the church, but rather to encourage the Christians by focusing on the, really the doctrine of salvation. The book itself can be divided into two different sections. You've got the first three chapters, which focus on the theological framework or the theological foundation and and the fact that we are saved. This is what it means to be saved. He focuses on predestination, redemption, he focuses on justification. So he lays out the framework of, of our theological framework regarding salvation in the first three chapters. And in the final three chapters, he talks about this is the practical side of our salvation, this is how we live out our faith based upon what I discussed in the first three. And so right now, we are looking at the theological framework, the foundation of what the Apostle Paul talks about specifically regarding our salvation. Uh, As we continue through chapter 2 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is focusing on the unity that Christ brings within the church. And if there's any place on earth that should be safe from specifically racism and prejudice, it should be the church. And this is a continuous conversation that he talks about from what the pastor Bryce talked about last week, Right? At the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how beautiful our salvation truly is. He's, he's encouraging us by saying that we have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world. And so the fact that you are a follower of Christ means that from the very beginning of time, God has orchestrated your life to ultimately lead you to the decision that you make, and that is salvation. That does not take away man's free will, but the facts still remain that God sovereignly chose you to be a follower of Christ. And so he takes that thought, he builds upon that, and he says, because you are a follower of Christ, I pray that you will understand fully what that truly means. The treasures that you have in Christ, the inheritance that is afforded to you because of Christ, so that the full understanding, or at least a deeper understanding of that, will give you more strength and energy to continue to live as a Christian. What Pastor Bryce showed us last week was the significance of the power of Christ and resu- or the power of God in resurrecting Christ, is the same power that resides in you, therefore also the church of God. And he gives us this great power to continue to live for him. He lays all of that out. He continues to build on it now. And he's focusing on, again, a little bit of an issue that occurs within the church. And that is this disunity that is taking place amongst the two groups of people. And that is the Gentile Christians and the Gentile Jews. For those of you that fully don't understand the dynamic there, the Gentile is anyone that is not a Jew. And so I don't think that there is anyone within our church that is of a Jewish heritage. Therefore, we would all be Gentiles. And so what that means is the Jews during those days hated the Gentiles because the Gentiles were not God's chosen people. And so they would call them dogs. They would say that they're nothing more than the scum of the earth. And it caused a tremendous problem within the church. What really changed and ratified everything was when Jesus Christ came and said listen this gospel is not just for you Jews it's also for the Gentiles as well and the Jews did not know how to handle that and the Gentiles did not always respond in a great way either and so yeah you didn't have racism necessarily within the church between blacks and whites or uh, Latinos and, and, and whatever you had racism really between the Jews and everybody else the Gentiles. And so you say, Pastor Brandon, you know, uh, today in my heart, I don't believe I'm a racist and praise the Lord, but that doesn't mean that prejudice doesn't exist within the church. There's all forms of, of prejudice. I had a phone call this past week with a pastor. And in the conversation, he shared with me of a local church uh, in Raleigh. I don't even know the name. It's not important. But he said that he was playing golf with a former pastor of that church. And that pastor no longer is the pastor of that church because in all intents and purposes, he was kicked out of the church because the church family did not like the socially, economically challenged people that were coming to the church based upon an outreach ministry that he had formed through the church. This outreach minister was feeding the homeless and was taking care of those that we would say were the quote-unquote down and out, those that needed help. They were coming into the church. The more rich and affluent people did not feel comfortable with that, and so they basically kicked the pastor out. There was a form of prejudice within the church. Even though not racism, it was economic prejudice. I had a phone call with the same pastor, and I was sharing with him the thoughts and the visions that I had about the church, or at least some things we were wrestling with and praying about, and I threw out this tent idea, right? I said, I don't, we'll just set up a tent for, 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 you know, if we can't find a building, and we'll just have church there. And his first response was, and he's coming from an experience, was you're not going to reach the wealthy people and the affluent people if you set up a tent. And I said, well, that's a problem. If we are setting up a tent, and I understand air conditioning, it's important, I understand all of that, but if somebody is not coming to church based upon how they feel or the certain look of the church and what it offers for them, that is not an example of Christianity. And I'm studying through this, and I'm like, okay, maybe there's not racism within the church, but there are forms of prejudice. Somebody is not as smart as what we are, or, and I'm not talking about our church here. I don't sense any of that here, and I praise the Lord for that. But if you were to look churches across the board, you know, or you've been a part of churches where there was where there was division based upon Some sort of prejudice. And so the Apostle Paul writes and says, listen, we need to get our facts together here. In this particular scenario, there was a prejudice between the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles, but the solution that he gives for that overcomes any type of prejudice within the church, which is why the title of our message this morning is God's uh, or overcoming prejudice within the church. This is God's purpose for the church, part four, overcoming prejudice within the church. There are three points that Paul makes when it comes to this topic of unity. As I mentioned before, there was this prejudice that was taking place amongst the two different groups here. But as Paul begins in verse 11, he reminds the Gentile Christians that they were once without Christ. He's focusing really specifically on the Gentiles here because apparently they were the ones that were causing more problems, not the Christian Jews. Paul reminds them that they were once without Christ, and in doing so, Paul reminds the Gentiles who were tempted to think that they were better than the Jews, that without the Jewish nation, they would have no hope. And so he starts off with this first point here, which brings us to the first point when it comes to overcoming prejudice within the church, that is this, remember our spiritual heritage. Remember our spiritual heritage. The Apostle Paul begins in verse 11 by urging the Gentiles to remember who they were before Christ. Paul begins and he says, Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Paul uses two different terms here to distinguish between the Gentiles and the Jews. He uses the term uncircumcision, which refers to the Gentiles, and the term circumcision, which refers to the Jews. Now, I understand that this is a unique concept, and this goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17, and so I'm going to, from a very professional standpoint, explain to you the significance of that very act. Those of you that are a part of the medical field, you know exactly what that means, because especially if you're in labor delivery, you deal with that uh, process. But there's a a significant meaning behind that that goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant between God and Abraham, in which God goes before Abraham and he promises three things. He says, I will will, uh, bring before your seed a great nation. I will give you land and I will bless the entire world through you or through your family. And then a little bit later on, that's in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 17, the apostle or or God delivers before Abraham the seal to that covenant. And that seal is this conversation or this act of circumcision. We find this in Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 9. It's there on your screen. It says, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation, he who is born in your house, so brought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so when it comes to this topic of Gentiles and Jews, the Gentiles are referred to as the uncircumcised. The act of circumcision itself did two things. First off, it showed to the rest of the world that these are God's chosen people. But if you were to think about the act itself, what it's doing, it's a foreshadowing of the cutting away of the heart that needs to take place through the gospel. If you were to think about it, It is addressing, and I don't mean this in an appropriate way, but it's addressing the organ in which the seed of sin is passed on to mankind. It is going to the very heart of the physical organ that passes on sin. And it is demonstrating that there needs to be a cutting away or a cleansing for mankind introducing salvation. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, we see that Jesus Christ was the man in which or the the act in which the cutting away of the heart, this sin, takes place. Therefore, this process of circumcision is no longer required for Christianity. It is done away with. But, when he starts off here back in Ephesians, he is highlighting the fact that you are the uncircumcised, you are the dirty ones, so to speak, you are the ones that have been cut off, so there's no reason for you to be arrogant, because it was the Jewish race that I chose to deliver the plan of salvation. So we see in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, the Gentiles understanding that they were the ones that uh, obviously were not afforded to this, the Jews... Having the physical, um, the physical identification that they were God's chosen people would hoard that or, or, or hold that over the Gentiles' head, and so we see the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter two says, "Listen, you're missing the point here." In Romans chapter two, verse twenty-five through twenty-nine, the Apostle Paul says, "For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, which every single person is, your circumcision has become uncircumcision." All right? In other words, you have become uh, dirty or lawless, so to speak. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? He's, he's trying to get them to understand there's a much bigger picture here than the physical act of that. He says, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the laws, judge you who, even with your written code and or circumcision are or transgressor of the law, for he is not of the Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, in other words, he is a he is a person that is recipient of the blessings of Abraham, who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so right there, the Apostle Paul is clarifying, the whole purpose of this physical act of circumcision, it is to show man's biggest need, and that is the cutting away of the sin that is in our heart that is only solidified or solved through the gospel. So going back here to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul begins by distinguishing between the Gentiles and the Jews. He uses that uncircumcision, which is really like a religious slur in, in a lot of ways, to help the Gentiles understand, listen, there's no reason for you to get arrogant. This is what you were. You were this. And he's reminding the Gentiles that they were nothing before Christ. But Paul continues in verse 12 by highlighting the spiritual alienation of the Gentiles. And he does so by delivering five ways in which the Gentiles were cut off from God. And I've highlighted them there in that verse. First off, he says that they were without Christ. In other words, they had no Savior or Deliverer. Therefore, they had no divine purpose or destiny. Their Savior did not come through them. It came through the Jews. Then he says, secondly, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. God's blessings were delivered through the nation of Israel, not the Gentiles. They were, thirdly, strangers from the covenants of the promise. This means that the Gentiles were not able to receive the promises made to the nation of Israel, such as land, a nation, and a kingdom, Fourth, they had no hope because they had been given no divine promises. Again, that was to Abraham and the Jewish nation. And finally, they were without God. They worshipped the pagan gods. They did not worship the one true God. Yes, there were Gentiles that were followers of Christ that became Jewish proselytes, so to speak. But the question then is, what happened with the Gentiles? Do the Gentiles now receive God's blessings that were given to the Israelites? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. Say, let me explain this. uh, Expound upon this. There were certain promises that were made by God that specifically went to the nation of Israel. These promises are not uh, saved for the Gentiles, known as the Church. The key to distinguishing the differences between God's promises for the nation of Israel and God's promises for the Gentiles comes down to a proper understanding of the covenants. Now, follow me here. Right? In the Old Testament, there are several covenants, but there's three specifically that were delivered specifically to the nation of Israel. Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant. I had to think about that for a second. Abrahamic covenant, as I just mentioned to you, was a covenant that was delivered to Abraham for a promise of land and for a promise of, 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 of great making their, their, uh, his deceit a great people okay? That is the nation of Israel and the land that was promised to them, the promised land. That does not go to us as Gentiles, but the third aspect, in other words, the fact that his seed will be a blessing to the world, does. And what he means by that is Jesus will come to the world, he will die on the cross on our behalf, and through the seed of Abraham, we will be blessed, the whole world will be, meaning Jesus, the human side of Abraham. You had the Mosaic law, The Mosaic Law was a conditional covenant. In other words, it only applied based upon a certain condition. The Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, was an agreement between God and his people that God would protect, he would bless, and he would provide for his people as long as they obeyed God's commandments and chose God to be their God. If you were to read Jeremiah... If you were to read all the other prophets, you will see the reason why Israel was consistently in bondage and in captivity is because they broke the Mosaic law. They chose to follow the pagan gods. They chose to disobey. Again, that was applied to the Mosaic law. Then you have uh, the final one is the Davidic covenant that was a promise that through the royal line of David the world it would continue forever and ever and ever. We see that Jesus coming through. Okay, those are applied only to Israel. Well, what is applied to the Gentiles? As you transition into the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is known as the New Covenant. Was the grace in which Jesus Christ brought to the world. Therefore, it's by the grace of God that we as Gentiles are afforded the blessings that God offers to the Jews or the remnant of the Jews, so to speak. We see this in verse 13. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so, yes, you as Gentiles are far off. You are not God's chosen people, but now you have been brought near. Because of what? The blood of Christ. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing? He's connecting back to chapter 1, specifically in verse 7. If you were to flip back to chapter 1 and verse 7, I believe it's on the screen as well. The Apostle Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Again, it all goes back to the blood of Jesus Christ. The possibility that we have to receive the blessings of salvation is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there's an interesting point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 11 to explain exactly what the blood of Christ does for those that are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There's a principle called grafting in. How many of you are familiar with that term from a biblical standpoint, grafting in? Okay, just a few of you. So follow me here because it's key for us to be able to understand exactly what this means because it helps us understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament correlate and what it means for me and you as a Christian Gentile, okay? Romans chapter 11, you can flip there if you would like. Romans chapter eleven. Um, if you are not familiar with what grafting means, grafting is a uh, primarily a gardening term. I understand you can do skin grafts and such, but we're going to take it from a gardening term here. Uh, it's the act of placing a portion of one plant into a stem or a root or the branch of another, and that healthy root system takes on that that branch that you planted in, and it grafts in and grows together. How many of you have actually ever done that before? Has anybody ever done that before? Impressive. All right. So you can talk to Heather first time here today and she'll explain all about it. All right. So grafting in is taking a, uh, a plant that's healthy. You cut the branch off, you take another uh, stem or, or whatever, and you plant it in there and it grows in together. It's a really cool concept. That's what grafting is. The apostle Paul uses that to explain how the Gentiles fit in together with the promises that were made to the nation of Israel. In Genesis, or sorry, Romans chapter 11, verse 16, it says, For the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. What does that mean? In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 16, the first part, he starts off with, The first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. This is in reference to Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. With the context of numbers, Moses was delivering a regulation from God to the children of Israel. When the people entered into the land of Canaan, which was promised to them, they would naturally enjoy the produce of the land. And to show their dependence or their, 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 their love for God, they would take the first portion of the crops, in other words, the lump of dough, and they would give that to God to symbolize, God, you own all of this. It's like our tithes and offerings principle, right? We oftentimes talk about, do you tithe from the net or do you tithe from the gross? And I would recommend that we tithe from the gross because that is the first fruits of the income. You give from that because you are demonstrating an act of worship, but you're saying, God, you own all of this. And so we give that to God. It's, that, that's the lump principle there. The, the, what the Apostle Paul is talking about, is that God would accept that lump as being an acceptable sacrifice, that lump representing that all of the offering or all the things that they owned was God. So here's a portion of it. So he takes that and he applies that to the patriarchs. He says that the root, in other words, the patriarchs of Abraham and, and, and Jacob and all those patriarchs there, Isaac, they are the ones that God chose to be the patriarchs of those that would receive the blessing of God. And so everybody that descended from them, those that placed their faith in God, in other words, the seed of Abraham, those that were descendants from the physical aspect of the nation of Israel, they would be considered holy because God said that the patriarchs are the ones who receive the blessing. Okay, They are the root, they are the foundation of the blessings in which God has delivered. And so the Apostle Paul continues and he says that anyone that has received Christ are going to therefore be grafted into that branch or that root of the patriarch. So follow with me here. I know this is a lot, but let's continue on. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, If the root be holy, once again, this speaking to the patriarchs of Israel, so are the branches. Again, God chose to bless the world through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That includes the Gentiles. And even though we are not... Uh, we're not Jewish uh, as far as uh, that nature goes. We are spiritual descendants of Abraham, and this goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, what I said earlier, that in Christ, or in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now look at verse 17. Paul says, If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Okay, follow with me here for just a moment. What the Apostle Paul is doing is he's again addressing the Gentiles because they were being arrogant in this particular passage as well. Because they were saying that there was a, quite a bit of Jews that did not receive Christ as their Savior. What, Jesus Christ, or what Paul is saying is that he recognizes the fact that there were a, a many Jews that did not receive Christ as their Savior. They are the dead branches. They were the ones that were cut off of the tree. In other words, removed from the blessings because they are not the remnant of Israel. They do not receive the blessing of heaven. They do not receive the blessing that was promised to to Abraham and the patriarchs because they did not choose Christ to be their, their Messiah. They did not choose him to be their Savior. So what the Apostle Paul does is he says they've removed those dead branches so that there's now room for you to be grafted in. You understand what I'm saying here? He saying we remove those who recognize the fact that there are no Jews that are followers of Christ. We remove them. And then you Gentiles, those that had that followed the, 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 the way of the Lord that have given your life to Christ, you receive the blessings that come through the spiritual blessings because you have now been grafted into the root of the promises that were made back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I say all that to say this, it is extremely important for us as Gentile Christians to understand our spiritual heritage, which is why uh, the, the new rise of the Independent Fundamental Baptist movement is anti-Semitism. There's a group of anti, uh, Independent Fundamental Baptists that say that basically they hate the Jewish race because they've rejected God. There's no grounds in scripture for that. They have overlooked really where our spiritual heritage comes from. And so there's no room for any of that. Paul continues in verses 18 through 20. He says, do not boast again against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. But what? The root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Again, urging the Gentiles, do not be arrogant regarding your Christian faith. And so what the Apostle Paul does, going back to Ephesians chapter 2, he says, how can we remove prejudice? First off, we understand this. You need to know where your spiritual heritage came from from the very beginning. And the fact that in Christ, we are all the same in Christ. And he goes on and he builds upon that. And point number two, he says, remember the peace that we have through Christ. Remember the peace that we have through Christ. Verses 14 through 18, the apostle Paul lists several ways in which the blood of Christ brought peace. First off, Paul says in verse 14 that Christ made both one. In other words, Paul was saying that the blood of Christ unified both the Jew and the Gentile together. Therefore, there was no grounds for division or hostility. Secondly, Paul says that Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation. What he's using there is he's highlighting the wall is a symbolic representation of the wall that was built in the temple to separate the court of the Gentiles from the Jews. The Jews could only go into certain parts of the temple and the Gentiles were not allowed to do so. But when Christ died, he figuratively speaking broke down the wall in the temple, therefore uniting all of mankind together and formulating man into one man, one new man. Verse 15, Paul says that Jesus abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace. Now, there's a new heretical teaching that was brought to my attention this past week from another pastor because it was becoming... I should say popular. There was a person in their church that was starting to buy into it. And the heretical teaching is known as the Hebrew Roots Movement. How many of you have ever heard of that before? Raise your hand. Hebrew Roots Movement. Okay. All right. Dan. So with the Hebrew Roots Movement, basically that teaching is this that the church today, the Gentile church today, has it all wrong because they've been influenced by really the Gentile or the Greek influence. Matter of fact, they would take the New Testament itself and say that it is not applicable because it has been tarnished by the fact that it was written in Greek by the Greek culture. And so they throw things out like birthdays and such, but there's much bigger than that. They say that most pastors today are not preaching the true gospel of Christ because what Christians need to do is go back to the Torah and live their life in keeping with the Torah. Those of you that are like, what's the Torah? It is the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Mosaic law. So in other words, they're saying that in order to be a Christian, a true follower of Christ, you need to keep the Mosaic law. So what they're saying, in essence, is there is no such thing as Gentile Christians. In order for you to be a follower of Christ, you need to more or less become a Jewish proselyte. You need to follow the Jewish religion, the Jewish race. And so they're intermixing works based They're basically taking portions of Jehovah's Witness, and they're taking portions of um, Seventh-day Adventists, and they're putting it together and saying that this is where we need to come back to. But they're missing exactly what the Apostle Paul says here. Jesus Christ came, and what did he do? He died, and he created what? One new man. Okay? You cannot have a new man if everybody has to convert to the Jewish way of teaching. He did not come here to convert everybody to the Gentile way or to the Jewish way. He came and he brought one new man, everybody being united together, having peace through Christ, which is that new covenant that he delivers, which is the entire New Testament. It is the new covenant of grace. So if somebody starts talking to you about this and they say, man, I've I've read up on this Hebrew uh, roots movement. It's really good. It's heretical in its teaching. And you can show them different scripture. You can show them here. So, And continue on in verse 16. The apostle Paul says that he might reconcile them both to God and one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Again, that word reconcile describes the restoration process that occurs between man and God. The blood of Christ is restoring man and God together, being both Jew and Greek. Paul says that Christ gave all access by one spirit directly to the Father, verse 17. He says, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off to those who are near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The same spirit the Jews have access to is the same spirit we as Gentiles have access to. The same spirit that the rich have access to is the same spirit that the poor have access to. Uneducated, educated, so on and so forth. And so Therefore, there is no room for any type of prejudice within the church because we all have the same spirit, we all serve the same God, and we all have been afforded the same grace through Christ but here's the final aspect that he gives here the final encouragement when it comes down to breaking down the walls of prejudice number three he says remember the unity we share because of Christ Paul continues in verse 19 he says therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God Again, what the apostle Paul is doing is referring to the fact that the Gentiles who were once strangers and foreigners have been made members of God's family through the blood of Christ. Paul continues to build on this thought in verses 20 through 22. He says... Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. What the Apostle Paul does is he wraps this up and he addresses one more issue within this. He says, you as a local church have been built by the foundation of what? The apostles. Upon the chief cornerstone of Christ. So what exactly does that mean? Actually, this explains why we as a church would hold to a cessationist view when it comes to the gifts. How many of you have ever heard of that term before? We are cessationists when it comes to the gifts. Okay, what does that mean exactly? You have a whole bunch of spiritual gifts that are given. I won't go time into, into diving into that. The Bible makes it very clear that once you receive Christ, you have are given a spiritual gift through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there are certain gifts that we would hold to today that are no longer in existence, and that is the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, the gift of miracles, and the gift of uh, prophecy, and the fact that you are foretelling something that is outside the scriptures, okay? Now, there's a reason as to why, and I'll support this view based upon scripture as to why, but first and foremost, the Apostle Paul says that the foundation of the church was laid by who? It was laid by the Apostles. A cessationist view, which is what we would hold to, is the view that miracles, tongues, and those kind of special gifts ceased or ended at the end of the apostolic age. They were given in order to do two things. Number one, to bring authority to what they were doing in establishing the church, but also to reveal to the Jews that what they were saying was exactly the truth. If you were to read the Apostle Paul in his preachings, he said that the Gentiles were appealed by what? Logic. Mind, right? Mars, um, read Mars Hill and the conversation that he has there with the Gentiles. He is not doing signs and wonders with them. He's appealing to them from an apologetical standpoint. Philosophy, that's what appealed to them. The Jews, the opposite. The Jews relied upon miracles and signs. That's why, whenever Jesus Christ was traveling through and he was ministering to the people, what did they demand of him? Give us a sign. Well, the Apostle Paul, in continuing to spread the gospel, there's a shift that takes place in uh, Acts, we read. The Jews kept continuing to uh, end, uh, uh, reject the gospel, reject the gospel, reject the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, listen, we are now going to focus our shift now to the Gentiles. Once the establishment of the church was laid by the apostles, there was no longer a need for those type of signs or gifts in order to provide the authenticity of God's word because the foundation had been laid. Now the focus is through the Gentiles, right? The Jews still get saved, but the gospel is now being distributed primarily through the Gentiles because the Jews have rejected it. All right, this all goes back to uh, with, with laying out the foundation of the scripture, which is why you have this thing called replacement theology and the other things to explain why God's attention seems to be shifted away from the Jews. Okay? And it is right now but his attention will go back to the Jews during the time of the tribulation. So I say all that to say this, when it comes to those certain signs and, and, and gifts, uh, we would hold that they would no longer exist. You say, well, I need some scripture references for that. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, the apostle Paul says, love never fails. He says, but whether there are prophecies, He's not talking about the prophecy as far as preaching. What I'm doing right now is what I would say is prophecy. I'm proclaiming the truth of God's word. I'm not telling you something outside of this, but that's what he's referred to as prophecy as being something outside of the word of God. Like Old Testament prophets, think about that. He said, whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will all vanish away. He's indicating that at some point, those signs will no longer be necessary. So we would say that during the apostolic age, it had transitioned away. Here's some other reasons to support that. The miracle or the sign gifts are only mentioned in the earliest of the epistles. 1 Corinthians talks about it, but later books such as Ephesians, Romans, that contain detailed passages of the gifts. If you were to look at those gifts, you will not see those, those gifts listed there. Number two, the gift of tongues, as I mentioned earlier, was a sign to unbelieving Israel, that God's salvation was now available to other nations. Once that was delivered, there was no longer a need for the tongues because that purpose had already been served. Tongues was an inferior gift. The Apostle Paul says that uh, because the churches were, were, were basically preaching in tongues and focusing on tongues, they were focusing on that. The Apostle Paul says that's not the point. That's not what you should be doing. There's something far greater than that, and that is the proclamation of the gospel itself. So the tongues was just a means in which God used in order to proclaim the truth, but they became too focused on that. They forgot the actual most important thing, and that was a proclamation of the gospel. Preaching of the word of God edifies the believers, whereas tongues does not. Also, history indicates that tongues cease. Tongues are not mentioned at all by the post-apostolic fathers. Writers such as Justin Martyr, Augustine, and Origen, they considered tongues as something that happened in the earliest days of the church. And finally there are indications that the gift of tongues has ceased. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, there's churches uh, here in our community, and I've watched some of their services where the pastor would get up and they would say, oh, praise the Lord, and they would start saying stuff like, and they would say they're speaking in tongues. Nowhere in Scripture was speaking in tongues gibberish. It wasn't that. They would say it was an angel language and nobody could understand. Tongues was not that. Tongues was the ability to be able to communicate in the language in which the people understood. So it was the ability to know Spanish at that particular moment. It was the ability to know Latin, or or most of them did. It was the ability to know another language at that particular moment. Well, nowadays, if that was still in existence, there would be no need for missionaries to go learn other languages when they would be going to other countries, because the gift of tongues would come into play. So again, another point, and we can give other scriptures to show this, but another point to say, or to show, that the foundation of the church has been laid by the apostles, and so therefore, these certain signs and these certain gifts are no longer in effect. Now, does that mean that God no longer produces miracles? Absolutely not. God absolutely produces miracles. I had a conversation with somebody that I'm close with, and their son was struggling with some severe health problems, and they had somebody that came in and uh, that person believed in miracles and all those things, and they came in and they prayed over the sun, and they had their hand on that sun, and that sun started to feel better. He said, "I believe that that miracle was now passed on from that person to him. I do believe that God performed a miracle there, but I don't believe that God had done it through that particular pastor through his hand into that person like they did with the the apostles." Me laying hands or uh, on somebody, and you have to be careful with that, but me praying for somebody doesn't mean that God used my prayer to miraculously heal that person through God working through me in that miracle. What that means is God still performs miracles, and we pray to Him that He would do so. So again, clarifying that we would hold to this view that there are certain gifts that, that has ceased and therefore... Uh, we would continue to proclaim the gospel, but God still does gifts because we have the full authority of the word of God. The foundation has been laid. And going back to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ is the cornerstone. In other words, he is the foundation or the the square, uh, the, the block of the building that squares off the rest of the building. That's what a cornerstone is. So everything about our religion Uh, about Christianity is all squared off by Jesus Christ, which is why we emphasize so much so the gospel. So as we close this morning, how can we wrap this up in one neat little bow? How do you overcome prejudice in the church? By the gospel. By keeping your eyes and your attention focused on what truly matters, and that is the saving work of Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer writes this, Has it ever occurred to you That 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. There are one accord being tuned, not to each other, but to to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ or in heart near to each other than when they could possibly be when they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What he's saying here is that a hundred worshipers gathered together are never going to be more unified than when their hearts are turned to Christ and in tune with him, rather than trying to work together cohesively and trying to build unity themselves without looking to Christ. And so when it comes to this passage here, the Apostle Paul continues to build on the subjects of salvation, and he says, listen, you are saved, praise God, but there's no room for prejudice because now you have been saved by the same God. You serve the same God, and so therefore live together in unity and glorifying the same God.